Well, good morning, Awaken family. It is so good to see all of your smiling faces this morning. Welcome to week two of our Picture Perfect Family series. For those of you who I haven't had the chance to connect with yet, my name is Ryan. I have the blessing of serving this incredible church family as the lead pastor. And today, we're kicking off, uh, or actually, sorry, we're going to be stepping into uh, the next step and step two of our journey towards becoming not a picture-perfect family, as we talked about last week, those really ultimately don't exist, but rather being a God-honoring, purpose-driven, and spiritually healthy family. That is something that's actually within our reach. That is what God has designed us to be. But before we take that next step forward, we have to first take a quick step back. I see a lot of faces that weren't here with us last week, so I want to make sure that you're caught up with us. Last week, we talked at length about the current and critical state that families in our society find themselves in. We saw a couple of eye-opening studies that revealed to us that we here in America, actually, we are in one of the worst societies for raising a family. We are at 34th, I think, out of 35 countries uh, in the developed world. We got a, a big fat F on the report card according to this study. I don't know about y'all, but it was a big eye-opener for me. That even the, the secular world saw that there's something wrong with the way that American families are being raised. And especially for us, right, being in God's house, we saw the need for us to go back to the biblical model, God's design for our families. And so if you're here with us last week, you'll remember that we painted the picture of today's modern day family looking more like a factory, right? A factory is a, an individual focused operation. Right? It's where your value is solely based on what you can produce, where everything becomes about the output. Everything's about consuming as much as you can, taking as much as you can until the factory eventually and inevitably shuts down. This is the path that modern day families are headed down. It's a fast track towards an eventual and inevitable shutdown. Well, clearly that's not what any of us want, right? For our biological or our spiritual families, which means that we must shift away from the factory mindset in order to move towards more of a farm mentality. Remember, farms aren't just hyper-focused on the individual. Farms aren't just about production. Farms require a tremendous amount of teamwork. They require a focus on the process, on planning on patience. On the farm, there's a, there's a shared vision. There's a collective mission that everybody rallies around. So it makes sense then that families that operate like farms, they, they get the importance of seasons and of healthy rhythms. They value the contributions of all generations. See, because the vision for a farm is long-term sustainability. So this is the picture. The farm picture is what we want to keep in mind for how God designed our families, right? To be multi-generational teams that are living on mission. Y'all with me so far? That's the really brief recap. We got a lot to cover today, but I want to make sure we all start out here on equal footing. But if that's the overarching vision, then the question for this week is what does this mean for us as individuals, right? What role do we play whether we are a biological parent, a spiritual parent, a son, a daughter, whatever it is, what role do we play in this? Well, I'm glad you asked <laughs> because that's what we're going to address today. And I want to take this illustration, this farming illustration, just one step farther 
to help you see what I'm talking about. So what I've got up here is a jar with some soil in it. And as you can see here, I've got a packet of seeds. Now, these are sugar beet seeds, which really has no specific correlation other than the fact that my father-in-law was born and raised on a sugar beet farm in Northeast Colorado. So tip of the cap to my father-in-law, Brian. But I want to ask you, what would happen if I took some of these seeds, right, and I planted them in this soil, right? Let's say I did it correctly, like my father-in-law gave me some tips and I did it and I, you know, watered them, gave them the right nutrients, gave them the right amount of sunlight. What would happen in about four to five months? What, what, would, what would come up? Sugar beets, right? Okay. Why? Because I planted sugar beet seeds, right? Okay. If I planted strawberries instead, what would I yield after a few months? Strawberries. Now, I don't mean to insult your intelligence with this illustration, but the reality is that some of us have gotten into this habit with our lives where we come to expect a harvest of something that we didn't even cultivate. We come to expect a harvest, something that we never even spent time cultivating, right? So we're surprised, right, maybe with our lackluster results in the gym, even though all we did all month was go and sit in the jacuzzi, <laughs> you know? Or we're surprised when our kids bring home a report card that isn't so stellar, and we realize that we never saw them do a lick of homework the entire semester. Here's my point, family. What you cultivate is what will eventually grow. And what you grow is what you'll eventually reap. So if it's a God-honoring, a purpose-driven, and a spiritually healthy family that you're after, if that's what you're hoping to reap, then you need to be intentional now to be cultivating disciples. Cultivating disciples is the first step in becoming a family that God has designed you to be. Right? It starts with you taking ownership of the opportunity God has placed before you and doing the intentional work of cultivating those that he has blessed you with. So let me ask you this, before we even really get started here this morning, who are you cultivating? Who are you cultivating? Remember, this isn't just a parenting conversation. Each one of us has been placed into a field, if you will. Each one of us has been surrounded by a biological and or a spiritual family in which we can be and we should be cultivating disciples. Right? This, at its most foundational level, is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, not about passing the buck of discipleship to anybody else. It's about taking ownership ourselves to obey the command of Jesus, to take advantage of the opportunity that he has placed before each and every one of us, the opportunities he's given us with those he has surrounded us and blessed us with. So that is going to be our focus this morning. And that ultimately must be your focus as you begin to reorient your family around God's original design. So we're going to get into what all of this looks like. We're going to talk about it spiritually. We're going to talk about it practically, as we always do. But before we do that, let's pause for a moment in a word of prayer. Would you join me? Father God, we are humbled. Humbled to be in your presence this morning. Humbled to be called your sons and your daughters. And Lord, I'm humbled to be part of such an incredible, multi-generational church family that's living on mission for you. Lord, I ask that you would use this time. Would you speak to us through your word? Would you continue to shape us to look more and more like your son, Jesus? It's in his holy and precious name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, before we get into our scripture passage this morning, I want to ask you just another question. 
talked about our individual goals, right, of cultivating disciples. Let me ask you this. What is standing in your way this morning of cultivating disciples? All right, if that's our individual goal, then some of us maybe aren't doing that or maybe aren't doing it the way we'd like to. What's standing in your way? It's a bit of a rhetorical question, and the answer actually might not be so obvious to you because it's so close to you. The answer is each of us. Right? We are standing in our own ways. And the reality is we come by this naturally, right? We are sinful people, and so naturally we're going to be selfish. But what makes matters far worse is that we live in a society that emphasizes, that prioritizes, that encourages, that even glorifies individualism. It's everywhere we look, right? The ads we see, the, the movies we watch, they all speak to the importance of being yourself, treating yourself Speaking your truth. I mean, I can go on and on and on here. Everything is focused on you, you, you. Right? Even churches over the last couple of decades have shifted their message away from the community type of language to be individually focused. It's what sells. Right? And if last week's studies didn't prove this to you, I have one more I want to show you this morning. This graph here is from a recent study that sought to discover which countries were more inclined towards individualism versus those that were inclined towards what they called collectivism. Do you notice who sits atop the individualist leaderboard? It's us. I'm sure that comes as no surprise to us. There is no other country that places as great of an emphasis on the individual more than we do. So guess what the natural result is? That there is little to no emphasis placed on community or in this case, placed on the family. It's no wonder then that our families have become like factories because we live in a society that operates on the two basic laws of individualism. Law number one, I am the most important person in my life. And law number two, anything that gets in the way of that is inherently wrong. I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem to jive with a healthy family, let alone a God-honoring, purpose-driven, and spiritually healthy one. I mean, depending on how you interpret the data we just saw, we probably live in the most selfish country in the entire world. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we're called to live quite the opposite of that, aren't we? As followers of Jesus, we are to look beyond ourselves, to follow Jesus' example in humbling ourselves, to lay down our lives for others. Well, that flies right in the face of those two laws of individualism. So what that ultimately means, family, is that we have to make a choice. We have to make a choice to follow the ways of the world or to follow the ways of Jesus. To give in to individualism, right, and to measure ourselves by what we produce or to follow Jesus and to be measured by the life we pour out. The choice is ours to make. And today, we're going to look at a very familiar passage that not only draws that line in the sand for us, but also gives us the practical insight for how we can live these countercultural lives that are focused on others in the midst of a world that desperately wants us to focus on ourselves. So the passage I'm referring to can be found in the book of Joshua in chapter 24. If you have your Bibles or Bible apps, now would be a great time to pull those out. Joshua is the sixth book in your Bible, and chapter 24 is going to be all the way at the end of that book. Now just to provide a bit of context as you find your place what we're about to read is a portion of Joshua's 
sort of final speech to the people of Israel. He's in the waning days of his life, and he is about to deliver one of those cinematic and dramatic end-of-life speeches. Right? He has already led the people of Israel through many successful battles. He has already led them into the promised land, and here comes that moment. If this was in a Hollywood movie, this is where like, the orchestra would start to build, right? The slow motion flashbacks would begin and, and the main character would begin to reminisce on all of his accomplishments. Only Joshua doesn't do that here. Instead, what Joshua does, he gathers all the tribes of Israel together and instead of sharing about his accomplishments, the Lord actually speaks through Joshua. Joshua begins this speech saying, thus says the Lord, and then the rest of what he gives comes from a first-person perspective of God. It's fascinating. We're not going to read the entire thing here this morning, but if you have those Bibles or Bible apps, you can see in those first several verses the way God reminds his people here. He says things like, I brought you out of Egypt. I destroyed your enemies. I rescued you. Basically, God's saying, hey, all those good things that happened to you, that was me. <laughs> and he caps all of that off. One of my favorite verses in Joshua, here, 24, verse 13. God reminds him, he says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, I know that's for the people of Israel, but I think some of us need to hear that message this morning. See, over and over again, God is reminding his people of his faithfulness and of his provision. And notice that unlike a lot of the other speeches that the Israelites get, there's no, there's no instructions, there's no warnings, there's not even any mention of the many, 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 many failures that had occurred in their past. This is simply God reminding them of his presence and the things that he had done on behalf of his children. And then in light of his faithfulness, then Joshua concludes this speech by laying down this challenge. You've probably heard these verses before, but join me in verses 14 and 15. It says, Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served before, beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So what Joshua is essentially saying to the people of Israel is, hey, God has lived up to his end of the covenant. Now it's time for you to uphold and honor yours. All right, so he says, what's it going to be? Are you going to honor your commitment to God or are you going to follow the ways of the world? He says, hey, choose this day. And what I love so much about this passage is that Joshua doesn't just lay down the, the challenge. He doesn't just throw down the gauntlet, right? But through Joshua, God actually gives us the, the guidance we need, not just to accept this challenge, but to actually flourish in it. And so that's where I want to spend the majority of our time this morning. We'll get to that challenge. We'll get to that mic drop moment for Joshua. But first, let's get practical, right? Let's talk about what it looks like to live this out. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want to give you four key points. I'll give them to you right up front. These are going to be what's going to help us to accomplish that individual goal of cultivating disciples. And it's going to set us up to accomplish that eventual goal of being the God-honoring 
purpose-driven, spiritually healthy families that we were designed to be. So if that's the harvest you are trying to reap, if that's what you're trying to cultivate, here are the four things you need to cultivate in your own life first. First, you need to cultivate a spirit of gratitude. Second, cultivate a posture of worship. Third, you must cultivate a heart of service. And then lastly, you need to cultivate a life of devotion. Spirit of gratitude, a posture of worship, a heart of service, and a life of devotion. That is what we are after. So let's break each one of these down, starting by cultivating a spirit of gratitude. Now, this is number one on our list because it was number one on God's list. Remember, it's God who's given this speech. Joshua is just the vessel. And God chooses to use about 90% of this speech to focus on the things that he had done. He's pointing his people backwards. He's saying, remember when I did this. Remember when I did this. And it's not because God wants the credit, right? He doesn't need the credit. It's because he knows the risk. He knows what will happen if the Israelites start to forget that he was the one who did these things. They'll start to take the credit for themselves, right? They'll start to see the blessings and their victories as a result of their own good works. I think we all know what a recipe for disaster that can be. And so he calls his people over and over again, not just here, but all throughout Scripture, right, to remember. Because the simple fact is that our present faith is largely based on our past experiences. Say that again. Our, our present faith is largely based on our past experience. And so the more we can see God's faithfulness in our rearview mirror, the more confidence we're going to have as we continue forward on the road of life. Are you all following with me this morning? Good. So I want to give you a couple practical ways that we can cultivate this spirit of gratitude. I've kept it really simple, so you can hopefully remember this. Go ahead and jot it down. Work on this this week. Two ways to cultivate a spirit of gratitude. Carry a staff and share a story. Carry a staff and share a story. Now, let me explain what I mean. I'm not asking you to go out and actually buy or find a staff. But in Joshua's time, it wasn't just shepherds or those who needed help walking that would carry a staff. Staff were actually, they were fairly common. And one of the reasons why they were common is that it was a means by which the people would tell the story of God's faithfulness. So what would happen is, if you carried a staff, when something major happened in your life, you would take a rock and you would either draw a little picture that symbolized what happened, or maybe you'd even just notch that staff just a little bit, so that you can look back over time and see God's faithfulness in your own life. It's like the very first version of Facebook. Nothing? <laughs> Cheesy pastor joke, okay. But I want you to think back for a second. Think back to Joshua's predecessor, Moses. When Moses is standing at the Red Sea, right, the Egyptians are, are barreling down on the Israelites, ready to destroy them. What does God tell Moses to do? To hold out his staff, right? And as Moses holds out that staff, what do you think Moses saw? Well, beyond the staff, he saw the Red Sea, right? This seemingly impossible and impassable object standing between them and safety. But as he looked closer, I'm sure Moses saw those symbols of God's faithfulness throughout his life. I'm sure he, his mind was drawn back to the many, many ways that God had already been faithful, and I'm sure that gave him the strength he needed to trust that God would be faithful again. I wonder this morning what your staff could be. One of my favorite examples ever of what this looks like comes from one of my favorite couples ever, if you guys know Steve and Karen Delware, then you know just how incredible this couple is. 
and you know just how strong their marriage is and how at a relatively young age, how much they are pouring in to the next generation. But what you probably don't know is that their journey in marriage hasn't exactly been a cakewalk. That it has been challenging. A few years ago, this couple was on the verge of divorce. We're talking inches away. The divorce papers were signed the whole nine yards. But then God did something miraculous. Even though everybody else seemed to have given up, God didn't. Even though this couple would probably tell you that it took a parting the Red Sea type of miracle to bring them back together, that's exactly what God did. And here's the staff that they carry. Check this out. You have that picture? There it is. This is an ornament the couple made later on that year for Christmas. And in it are the shredded up divorce papers. Inside is that. You can put your hands together. And now this incredible couple uses this as their staff to tell the story of God's faithfulness, to tell the story of God's goodness, to tell the story of the miracle that happened in their life. And already in just a few years' time, so many marriages have been strengthened. Some have even been restored based off of the testimony, based off of the staff that they have carried. So what's your staff? What's your story? Because each of us have one. And these are the greatest tools we have to be cultivating disciples among us. So that's point number one. Cultivate a spirit of gratitude. That naturally leads us to point number two, which is to cultivate a posture of worship. Now, to be honest, this should be our natural response, right? When we see something like that, how can we not just worship our God? But still, Joshua has to tell us to fear the Lord. And I know this may not be language that we use a whole lot nowadays, this idea of fearing the Lord. But honestly, we really should. Because what it means to fear the Lord is to have such great respect for him, to be in such awe of him that you are willing to submit, to humbly submit your life in humble obedience to him. In other words, to live your life in a posture of worship before him, giving him your undivided uh, attention, giving him your unparalleled allegiance. See, the problem is when most of us think of our posture in worship, we think of uh, what we do with our hands here on Sunday morning, right? <laughs> like, is it this? Is it this? Are we going to, like, do like, really crazy, this sort of thing? But I'm not talking about the worship that you do in here for a half an hour every Sunday. I'm talking about the worship that you do out there every other day of the week. See, I'm not sure if you knew this, but each and every one of us, no matter who you are, no matter where you're at, no matter where you might come from or what you believe, each and every one of us, we worship something. You have to. Right? Even atheists worship something because that's how we were designed to operate. The only question is who or what we are worshiping. Right? Who or what we are expressing our reverence and our adoration to. Who or what we are laying our lives down for. The fact is, every single one of us is worshiping all of the time. This is why Joshua tells the people to fear the Lord. Because he doesn't want just to like modify their behavior. He wants to reorient their worship. He wants to put the focus back on God to give God the respect and the reverence that he alone deserves. Because the worship of him is ultimately what is going to drive each of their behaviors. So let's make the spiritual practical again real quick here. 
Because I think there are a few things that each of you can do to cultivate this posture of worship in your life. Here's a few things you can do. Number one, identify your idols. See, I honestly believe most of us don't even realize that we're worshiping other things in our lives. The good news is there's a pretty easy way to find out. I want to give you just a, a, a really simple thing you can do this week. Take a piece of paper and write three words on it. You write three words, attention, concerns, and imagination. And all you have to do, this will take like five minutes. Next to attention, write down three or four things that are taking up most of your mental space right now. Next to the word concerns, write down those three or four things that are causing you some anxiety. And then next to the word imagination, write a few more things that, that have you daydreaming these days. And then just take a step back, and what you'll see are the things that have the potential to become idols in your life. Or maybe they already have become that. It doesn't take a whole lot. Five minutes of intentionality can reveal a lot to you. And then take that list and offer it up to God. And you'll begin cultivating that posture of worship. Another way you can do this is to remove the distractions in your life. Now, I don't want to downplay the seriousness of idolatry, but the, the reality is that most of what's getting in our way is honestly just clutter. It's clutter in our schedules. It's clutter in our relationships. It's clutter in our homes. It's just all this stuff that's distracting us and vying for our attention. So sure, make that list that's important of those things that are vying for your adoration, but don't neglect those mundane things that are just stealing your attention away from the Lord. So identify your idols, remove the distractions, and lastly, put God back on the throne. In other words, take yourself off of it. And this is actually an area where I'm going to include what happens here on Sunday mornings. Because when we worship, it's not about how those songs make us feel. It's not about the things that they give us. It's about putting God back on his throne. It's about lifting high the name of Jesus. Identify the idols, remove the distractions, and put God back on the throne. All these things, they require us to humble ourselves, which leads to the third point. We talked about cultivating a spirit of gratitude and a posture of worship. Next, Joshua commands us to cultivate a heart of service. I'm not sure how many of you knew this, but I used to work for a Christian humanitarian organization called World Vision. And in my time there, I got to know a, a lot of my colleagues from around the world. And there was this one gentleman I got to know. He was from the country of Ghana. His name was Leo and just a fantastic man of God. And I remember having a conversation with him one day. And I don't remember how he got to this point. But what he told me is that in the dominant religion of Ghana, he said there's really no way to ask somebody what their religion is. The only way you can do that is by asking them, whom do you serve? Isn't that interesting? That's stuck with me for years. Because I think in the same way we've lost what it means to, to fear the Lord, I think so many of us have lost this idea of what it means to serve him as well. Right? To actually put our faith into action, obeying his commands with every aspect of our lives, not just the small Sunday morning portion of it. I think that's why we see Joshua repeat this word serve so many times. I think it's six times in just these two verses. Because who we serve reveals who we worship. And nowhere, family, in the entire Bible do I think we see this more clearly than in Matthew 25. If you've heard this parable of the sheep and the goats, 
right? Matthew 25, 40, Jesus tells the righteous, those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven, he says, whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did it for me. And the simple truth this points us to is that our service of Christ can be most clearly seen in our service of others. So if it's the Lord we worship, then it's the Lord who will serve, and that'll be most evident in the way we serve those among us. So listen, if you want to cultivate disciples, one of the most important ways you can be planting those seeds, if you will, is by serving the lost and the least among you. Let me just pause for a moment and ask you another question. Who are you serving with your life? Who are you serving? I think if we were to be honest with ourselves, if we took a look at our calendars, if we took a look at actually the proof before us, the answer for most of us would be us. We are hardwired to serve ourselves. And again, we live in a society that says, hey, not only is that okay, but that's exactly what you should be doing. But I want to encourage you just for a moment to take the words of Jesus seriously. Actually, I want to encourage you for the rest of your life to take the words of Jesus seriously, but especially right now. Because in Matthew 25, after he welcomes into the kingdom those who serve the least and the lost among them, he says this to the others. Verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, where did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me pretty simple. If you want to cultivate disciples, then you must cultivate a heart of service. So let's get practical again. I don't want to just preach at you guys. I want to give you some tools by which you can actually see this come to fruition in your life. And these next few encouragements, they actually don't come from me. I want to give credit where credit is due. These come from Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, but I thought they fit so well into what we're talking about this morning. So here's five quick encouragements. The first one is just to be available, right? Keep your schedule open so when that call comes to serve, you can actually answer it. Or at the very least, be willing to change your schedule when God calls you to do, when he calls you to do so, right? True servants don't just serve when it's convenient or when they feel like it. So be available. Next, be, percept, be, excuse me, be perceptive. Actively look for ways that you might be able to serve others. Right? Once you actually start looking for this, you'll be surprised. There are so many opportunities to serve other people around you. They may just not always be easy, right? They may not always be convenient or enjoyable, which is why true servants also need to be dedicated. And let's be real. There's always an available excuse now, isn't there? I think today excuses have become like the standard, right? But true servants don't make excuses. True servants do what they got to do to get things done. I think this is because they understand that the whole, hey, it's the thought that counts. That might work for Christmas presents. It does not work with service that never gets done. Next, be reliable. And I'll take ownership for at least my generation. We need this one desperately. We need true servants who are reliable, who do what they say they're going to do, who keep the promises they say they're going to keep. 
So be trustworthy. Be reliable. Lastly, be humble. Don't serve for the applause or the acknowledgement of the people around you. Serve for that audience of one. That leads me to my fourth and final point this morning as I invite the band back up. We've talked about cultivating a spirit of gratitude, a posture of worship, a heart of service, and what this all must be grounded in is a life of devotion. So cultivate a life of devotion. That is point number four. Joshua makes it clear here at the end of his speech that the God of Israel was not the only option for who to worship. The God of Israel was not the only option for who these people could serve. And while the the gods that he mentions that the Israelites' fathers had worshipped beyond the river, while they may not still be worshipped here today, the remnants of them still exist. We're still tempted by the same desire to seek comfort and to seek satisfaction and to seek purpose in the things that we can see or touch or feel. We're still attracted by these things that fuel our desire for instant gratification. And so what that means is that Joshua's challenge for them then applies to us here today as well. To choose this day who we will worship. To choose this day who we will serve. See, I believe one of the biggest temptations facing us today in our society is to believe that we can straddle the fence. To believe that we can be in the world, be of the world and still serve and worship Jesus. But what Joshua is saying here is that each one of us must make a choice. He's made it clear each one of us need a God. Each one of us is designed to worship. Each one of us is serving someone or something. So it's time for you to make a decision, family. Who is it gonna be? I pray that your words will echo those of Joshua. All right, as for me and my house, I pray that God would give you the courage just the same way he gave Joshua the courage that he needed to rise against the tide of culture, to make his declaration public. All right, Joshua says, you can do what you want, but as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. And here's the good news, family, is that you don't have to wait to do this. You can begin today to plant seeds and to cultivate disciples right where you're at. It's not going to be easy. (laughs) It's going to be really, really hard. The growth isn't going to happen overnight. But God will be faithful. I promise you. He will be faithful to bring the growth. Time is now, family. Choose this day to follow Jesus. Choose this day to live a life in worship and in service to him. And in time, you will find a great harvest among you. Would you stand now as I close this message in a word of prayer? Father, we pause now in this moment. We just want to praise you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. You have been so, so good to us. Thank you for the reminder that you have given us today. I pray that my brothers and sisters this morning, that their reflection on your faithfulness wouldn't stop there, but that it would lead them to to cultivate this posture of worship, this heart of service, this spirit of gratitude, and this life lived in devotion to you. And from that place, Lord, I pray that disciples would spring up all around us.
Lord, we long to see our families following you. So would you give us the courage we need to cultivate those that are among us so that we might be God-honoring, purpose-driven, and spiritually healthy families just like you have designed us to be. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus.